Hi there, and welcome to Pod Rocket, a web development podcast brought to you by LogRocket. LogRocket helps software teams improve user experience with session replay, error tracking, and product analytics. Try it for free at LogRocket.com today. My name is Paul, and joined with us is Robin Marks. He is coming to talk about his latest JS Nation talk, and he's certainly an expert on things HTTP web and transport. So he's a web and network protocols expert over at Akamai. We're going to be digging a bit into HTTP3. What is it? Why is it important? And especially from the purview of somebody who might develop full stack applications, doesn't matter to me. Welcome to the podcast, Rafan. Hey. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me. Happy to be back. We already talked about HTTP3, I think, a year ago. But yeah, there is some new interesting developments since, especially for JavaScript developers. So that's what we'll talk about today. Yeah, so we had you back on in 20, uh, July 2022, and we got into, yeah, what is HTTP3 at a basic level? How is it different than HTTP2? If you want to go check out that podcast, please do. But for folks who haven't listened to it, Robin, is HTTP3 something new on the block? Because a lot of times when we bring people on, we're like, hey, there's this new feature, there's this new thing coming out. It's something that maybe hasn't been released or hasn't really been seen yet, but that's maybe not necessarily the case with HTTP3. No, by now, H3 is really quite mature, I would say. It's fully supported by all the main browsers, and there are a lot of big developers, uh, big uh, deployments, I would say, that already enable it. So especially if you're using a CDN, content delivery network like Akamai or Cloudflare, you will already be able to use HTTP3. It's still a bit difficult to set up yourself. If you have your own Apache, Nginx, Node.js server, then it's more difficult. But uh, outside of that, it's really quite mature and ready, ready to use today. So what is the general landscape for folks that are wondering, like, I'm seeing protocol 2, version 2, in my debug and all that. Where, I haven't noticed 3. Where is it deployed? Where is it common? Yep. So it's mostly common in very big deployments. If you look at Facebook, Meta, all on H3, Google, YouTube, all on H3, Amazon, those kinds of properties, all of those are mostly H3. You can also see this in, for example, the browser dev tools. If you enable the protocol column, you should see H3 showing up quite a bit for those, those bigger websites. Yeah. Gotcha. And I'd love to just really quickly, before we step into some of the new content that you're putting out from your talk about optimizing for JavaScript developers, if we could dig a little bit into what makes HTTP special, because we're going to be talking a little bit about round trips and how we're getting data. So it's my understanding that there's something different than how it uses TLS and TCP. That's a big difference between HTTP 3 and 2. Could you shed some light on that for us? Yeah. That's exactly right. So if you just look at the HTTP part, then 3 and 2 are very similar. They have very similar features. It's really underneath that that things have very much changed. So if you've ever heard about the protocol stack and the transport layer and that kind of stuff, that's where things have changed. So HTTP 2 runs on something called TCP, the transport control protocol, and it uses TLS, the transport layer security protocol for encrypting your pertinent user data. And that's a very big difference with HTTP 3. This no longer uses TCP. It uses something very new called Quick. Quick is a new transport protocol. And Quick also still uses TLS, but in a different way than TCP. 
with TCP, TLS is a very separate protocol. It's used separately from TCP. With Quick, it's deeply integrated into the Quick protocol, which gives us a lot of efficiency improvements because they can work together much tighter than TCP and TLS can. And so the main difference between version 2 and version 3 is really at that lower layer, the change from TCP to Quick, and that brings us most of the differences and most of the benefits. So that's the main difference between version 2 and version 3 is that it changes TCP for Quick, and Quick is where most of the differences come from and also most of the benefits of HTTP 3. And for folks listening, if you're Hearing quick, we've had Mish go on here, who is the author of the quick web framework. This is different, it's spelled Q U I C. If you want to go Google it, it might make you raise an eyebrow when you first see that spelling, but that's what makes it special. It'll make it easy to Google so you can go find documentation on it and find out more. So, Robin, when we have this quick box sort of replacing the TCP box, and using TLS in, in this new way, what are some of the top level or top of mind benefits that people might observe or try to reach for from having that? We're going to be looking at round trips, right? So I'm specifically wondering, how does that save us? So that's one of the key benefits, right? As I said, TCP and TLS are separate. And to get a connection set up, they both need to do their own, what is called a handshake. So they need to exchange some data between the client and the server to set up the necessary parameters. And this takes some time on the network. This takes a network round trip to exchange this data. And so TCP first does this. It's one round trip. And then TLS needs to do its own handshake. That's another round trip on the network. And only after that can you get HTTP2 sending and receiving data. And so that's the nice thing with Quick is that it can do both the transport level handshake, so the quick level handshake, and the TLS session handshake, the decryption parameters exchange, all of that can happen in the same round trip. So instead of having two separate ones, you can only have one at the very start. And especially if you're on a slow network or, or you're connecting to a server far away, that can make several hundreds of milliseconds difference in, in how long it takes for the connection to set up. And so also, for example, to how long it takes for your page to start loading. So if TLS grandfathered into the quick box, it's not its own layer we're talking about, it's inside the quick. Does this make the stack, the networking stack that you might be dealing with as a developer, sort of more like a black box versus, you know, I can use this TLS version, that TLS version I want to use, I do not want to use. Do you feel like it's a black box? And do you think, uh, if so, this is a good thing or a bad thing for the, uh, you know, for the average web developer when they're using this stack? Conceptually, <laughs> it makes it more of a black box, I would say, yes. So you have slightly less freedom conceptually than you used to have because you're really stuck with this. You can't use Quick without TLS. And you also can't use Quick with TLS 1.2, for example. You can only use it with a newer version, 1.3. So in that way, yes. In another way, you can really ask yourself the question, does that really matter? Especially for front-end developers. You didn't configure your stack yourself anyway, probably. Uh, <laughs> so in practice, I don't really think it matters at all. And in a way, it's good that we use the protocols as a, as a black box and that we don't try to force too much configuration on top of them, because that allows both the server and the browser to make the necessary optimizations. And we don't really need to think about those. Those just happen in the background. 
we just get the use and, and benefit from them. And last but not least, so we talked about reducing handshake time, both like roping TLS into the, T- the quick layer, which might have been separate from TCP traditionally. What is this, Robin, or is this different than what you would tokenize as the zero RT feature? Uh-huh. So zero RTT is like an extension of that where it becomes even more interesting. <laughs> so the default way that H3 and Quick work is you have one round trip for the handshakes, so Quick and TLS handshakes. And then in the second round trip, you will send your H3 request and get a response back. So it's two round trips total to get some H3 data back. Zero RT makes this even better it allows you to send your H3 request alongside the quick and TLS handshake in the very first round trip already. So instead of having to wait two round trips, you actually get some response data back in the very first round trip already. So zero RTD, it's a bit of a weird name, I always think, because you still need one round trip to get something, but it's zero overhead. All the overhead of the lower layer protocols is gone. You get immediate H3 data transfer going on. So 0RTD is like the best we can do and also something that quick and H3 enable. So we've had a lot of ground covered here. We've talked about some basics of the HTTP3 protocols, what gives it the edge, why it's interesting, the 0RTT. And like we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, if you want to learn more with Robin in particular, go check out the episode we had last year in 2022 with Robin Marks on HTTP3. We're going to hop into Robin talking a little bit about your JS Nation talk and why and how could this matter for web developers. Before we do that, though, I just want to remind our listeners tuning in that this podcast is brought to you by LogRocket. And if you're developing either in the server side or on the client side, if you're trying to speed up your application, LogRocket is there to help you along the way. It can help you solve errors faster with issue tracking, surfacing patterns that you might not find naturally with AI, and helping you develop your application faster and spending more time actually building and less time debugging. So if you want to try it out, go to LogRocket.com today and you can try it for free. So let's turn our attentions back to your JS Nation talk that you gave, Robin. Why would somebody who's developing a regular web application right now in 2023 start to really maybe feel enticed to learn about what we're talking about here and and use it to start to speed up their web application? Yeah, good question. So as we just talked about, most of this is a black box, Right, And that's good. You don't need to care about it. The only thing you really need to do is just enable H3 on your hosting provider or your CDN if you're using it. And you get 0RT, but also a lot of other performance benefits like for free. You just get them out of the box. Usually it's a good thing. The thing is, as front-end developers, sometimes you do want like a little bit more control. Like most of the protocol features are fine and default, but sometimes to get optimal web page loading performance, to optimize things like the Google Core Web Vitals, you need a little bit of extra control. And that's where it sometimes goes wrong, because you get this control through like very high-level browser features. HTML markup that you can add, things like preload, maybe things like async or defer JavaScript tags. Attributes, I should say. Those are very high-level features, but what you might not realize is that they actually impact how the protocol works underneath. 
And so most people use these features in a bad way, inefficiently, or sometimes even incorrectly. And so they don't get optimal performance from the underlying protocols. Could you maybe shed some light on what one of these protocols might be and how it could be specifically used in an incorrect way that maybe would catch people off guard? Well, one of the main problems I sometimes see is that developers preload, so they use the preload directive for an async or a defer JavaScript. And that it depends on what they're trying to do. <laughs> but usually that's not the best idea ever. And they don't always understand exactly how preload works and how that impacts async and defer and how that actually works together with something like HTTP3. So to understand that, you do need a lot of <laughs> internal knowledge. I'll try to condense it as much as possible, of course. So, so the thing is, both HTTP2 and HTTP3, they use only a single underlying connection. This means that if you need to load a lot of different files on the web page, you need to somehow decide in which order to load these files. Am I going to send the HTML first, or will I send the CSS first, or maybe the JavaScript first? And which of these is better for your eventual web performance. And the way that's decided, who decides in which order to send these files, that's actually the browser. The browser will decide, and that's where like stuff like preload and async defer come in. The browser decides what the order of the loading of the resources should be. And for example, let's say that you, if you have an async or defer attribute on your JavaScript, what Google Chrome will do is say, okay, async and defer is to me a clear message from the developer that these JavaScript files are less important than, let's say, JavaScript files in the head, or even less important than some images on the page. And so Google Chrome is going to tell the server, these are async defer JavaScript files. You should load them relatively late in the web page load. These can be delayed, right? Other stuff is more important. That's how that interacts with the protocol because the protocol gives you the features. It's called prioritization. HTTP3 offers this prioritization and the browser uses that to tell the server, this is the order in which I want this to be sent. And async and defer, that should probably come relatively late in the page load. That's what the browser does by default. What happens then if you preload one of those async or defer JavaScripts suddenly the browser is going to say, it's not necessarily going to say this is more important. It's just going to say, I don't really know if this JavaScript resource is being async or defer tagged. Because you probably know if you do preload, you add that to the head of the HTML file. But the actual file is, for example, only loaded at the bottom. It's what you often see with server-side with server rendered single-page apps, for example, nowadays. They had a preload on top, and then the actual files are loaded all the way on the bottom. So on the top, when the preload happens, the browser doesn't even know if this is going to be an async or deferred JavaScript. And it's going to request the JavaScript at a very high priority, a high importance, should be sent very early on in the page load, because it doesn't even know if it's async or deferred at that time. And so what you get because of that is that your JavaScript file, which is probably less important than, let's say, your largest content full paint image, or, or let's say your fonts, for example, they actually get loaded very early on in the page load 
because you decided to, to preload them. And that is an interaction that I found that a lot of developers don't really understand and why that matters in practice. It's almost like an escape hatch that you're digging for yourself. Would that be a, a fair comparison to, to paint? There's all these uh, guarantees or, or uh, benefits that the protocol can give. But when you use the higher level API, you're taking control and you really need to understand what that, what that priority, how the prioritization is being affected. Exactly. That's the whole point, right? So the high level features, they don't they give you direct control over the protocols, but they do influence how the protocols behave underneath. And if you don't understand how that works, you will end up making, making a lot of mistakes. So what do you say to the folks listening who go, I have a CRUD application and I just use like fetch, okay, or some like loaders or API routes to, to do some cross-site, maybe serverless calls. How does the fetch API change or affect the way that you might develop if you're building on H3? Yeah, and that's a very fun one because there you see, there it matters a lot as well. So the fetch API calls, all of the browsers, basically anything you fetch, they see as the same type of resource. And so all of them are also the same priority. So the same uh, moment in time where it needs to be loaded in the web page load. The thing is there, very important, the browsers don't agree on how important fetch calls actually are. So for example, Google Chrome, in Google Chrome, fetch calls, so if you do a fetch call to anything, is equally important to a parser blocking JavaScript file. For example, let's say you're loading a JavaScript file on the head, and before that you do a fetch call, then the result of the fetch call is actually going to come in, it's going to be put on the wire, it's going to arrive before you get the JavaScript content of the of your actual JavaScript file. Might seem okay, might seem reasonable. The thing is, this is only in Chrome. In Safari and Firefox, it's reversed. <laughs> so in Safari and Firefox, the fetch call will complete after the JavaScript in the head is, uh, is loaded. So basically, you get a different order of loading the resources depending on the browser that you are, that you are using. Gotcha. So d- do you have any preconceptions about why this have might turned out the way between the browsers because there's always been differences in the browsers but this feels like a very fundamental almost like vm level difference between them believe me i've asking i've been asking myself that question for a very long time it was actually my main topic in my phd research what I found there mostly is that uh, the developer of the system or the developer of the browser just chose whatever seemed okay to them at the time and didn't really take the time or the effort to actually test in practice what this would do to page loading performance of common websites. And nowadays it's been a bit better. This has evolved a bit for the better, especially in Chrome. So Chrome is doing a lot of tests nowadays. Whenever they change something, they try to look at real user data and everything, which is not really the case for Safari and Firefox. They just have a developer thinking, okay, according to me, this is the optimal approach, and I just choose that. Whether or not that's actually true doesn't really seem to matter to them in practice, sadly. Gotcha. So if we're talking about fetch and maybe doing a get, a post request, 
you mentioned using some higher level APIs. All these things can change the prioritization and the way that you're interfacing with H3 in your web application. What about resource discovery? The way that the browser might preemptively, because we had, what was it? Please correct me if I'm wrong here, but was it like server push or something? It was like some way the server could predict what the client would need and would like preemptively push it. Yep, yep, yep. So that's the other side of the coin, I would say. So prioritization is one thing. So for the resources that I know about, this is the key point, the resources that the browser knows about, in which order should they be sent? Then the question becomes, how do you get to know about these resources? <laughs> how do you discover that a resource is needed? Again, sounds silly, but of course, a simple example there is, let's say you have a background image defined in a CSS file. The browser will only discover that background image is needed after it downloads the CSS file, sees the URL in the CSS file, and only then can it start to request. That's one of the reasons that you have something like preload, right? To tell the browser, I know this will be needed in the future, even though it's not visible yet. I know this will be coming up, so maybe you can already start loading that. So this whole concept of the browser needing to have downloaded a resource to discover its sub-resources, so the resources, its child resources, I should say, is a very key part of how websites, of course, work. And this is also true for the HTML. <laughs> you can basically do nothing at all until you get your HTML, or at least the top part, like the head of the HTML. That's where most of the top files are, are there. And that's the key point there. The HTML is often delayed. Because if you, for example, do a server-side rendering and you don't have the HTML in cache somewhere, it will take a while for, let's say you're using Node.js, it will take a while to do a call to the database or to some microservices that you have running to actually get the data to then render the page uh, through a template, which also takes a little bit of time. And then you can start returning the HTML. So basically, that's, that's what we call the server think time, server waiting time. What you basically get is a period on the network that you could be sending stuff, you could be sending packets, but you can't because you're waiting for the HTML to be generated. And during that time, the browser is also stuck. It can't do anything because it needs the first part of the HTML to start discovering and requesting the other resources. So that's the problem. And then the solution, as you said, the solution we thought was going to be the solution, uh, spoiler alert, it was not. <laughs> what we thought was going to be the solution with HTTP2 was indeed server push. Where the idea being that while I'm waiting for the HTML to be generated, I can already start sending data for my JavaScript, for my CSS, that I know the browser will need. The browser itself doesn't know it yet because it's waiting for the HTML. But the server knows, because I've configured it, the server knows you will need this CSS, you will need this JavaScript. I'm already going to start sending it to you. I'm going to start pushing. That's where the name comes from. I'm going to start pushing the data for these files to the browser so that by the time the HTML gets generated, you already have the CSS and JavaScript as well and everything is as fast as possible. But that didn't go exactly as planned, right? So yeah, server push turned out to be very difficult to use in practice. I really don't want to go into the details because it's very technical stuff. What it again comes down to is that a lot of the browsers had different opinions 
on how this should be done. There are also quite a few bugs in their implementations. And the way that push itself works often led to the server sending useless data. Data that the browser, for example, already had in the cache that didn't need to be sent was often still sent with push instead of actual useful data instead. So the end result of all of this, the only thing you really need to remember about push is that it's now no longer used. (laughs) It was removed from Chrome, for example, completely. It's not a feature that is still actively used today. And so if we're not using push to sort of, uh, I'll call this the dead zone right at the beginning when the when the browser needs to figure out what resources it needs to, so to cure this dead zone, we're not using push. So what is H3's like answer to that? Yeah, so, so that's the thing, right? Concept of push was good because we do want to fill that dead zone, like you say. That's still a good idea. It was just the push mechanism that was wrong. And so we now have something new, a new mechanism that is called 103, early hints. And the nice thing about this is you say it's an HTTP3 feature. It's actually not. It's something you can use with both HTTP2 and HTTP3 at the same time because it's like a higher level HTTP feature, not tied to the protocol version. But so this early hints... It conceptually is very similar to push. The t- uh, setup is the same. The main difference is with push, you actually started pushing actual data. So you would say, like, I read the first 20 kilobytes of the CSS file, and I'm actually going to send the 20 kilobytes of the CSS file. That was push. What this early hint stuff does is slightly different. It's not going to start sending the actual data. It's first going to send links to the resources. So instead of saying to the browser, hey, here's 20 kilobytes of the CSS, it's going to say, hey, here is a link to the CSS that I think you will need. And that seems like a very stupid distinction, but that's actually what solves the push problems. Because now, for example, the browser can see, okay, this is a link to the CSS, but I actually already have that CSS in cache. I don't need to request this because I already have this. Let the browser decide. Let the browser decide. But look, hey, the server is telling me I will also need a JavaScript file that I don't have in cache yet. And then the browser can request that file. So instead of the server pushing the JavaScript data, it's again reversed. The browser requests the JavaScript instead. And then it can again use things like prioritization <laughs> correctly, which it couldn't for, for servers, server push. So it's just a, it's a, it's, it might seem like an insignificant detail. It's relatively technical. But so just switching that from actually pushing data to first sending a few links and letting the browser request them actually solves all the problems we had with push while getting most of the benefits out of them. And then some on top. For example, one thing you couldn't do with push is push assets from subdomains or from third-party domains. Let's say you had your fonts or your images on a separate subdomain, you couldn't push those. With one or three early hints, you can. You just send links to the subdomains and the browser will just open a new connection to the subdomains and and do that. So overall, much, much more powerful, much more flexible, but also much more robust than push. And so that really helps if you're um, if you have slowly generated server-side rendered, for example, HTML. You have to wait for a long time. You can start letting the browser know, hey, 
you all also need this. While we're waiting for the HTML, you can already start downloading the CSS, the JavaScript, maybe even your largest content full paint image before the HTML even comes in. And we're testing this right now, and it gives you very impressive uh, speed-ups of the like. We, we've seen about half a second speed-up on largest content full paint. That is exciting as heck. Like It's almost like you said, threw up your hands, you're like, I can't deal with all these browser confusions. You guys take care of it. <laughs> yep. I'll just tell you what to do. Robin, we're unfortunately like running up on time here, but there's a big feature that we have to zero in on before we end the podcast today, which is web transport. Because this is this feels like a biggie, especially as in the developer community, more and more we're like looking back to back on our shoulders and we're looking at the fundamentals. Like what is a form? <laughs> what is what are web components and stuff? So let's talk about web transport because we did mention fetch earlier. Maybe through that lens we could step into this combo really quick. What is web transport and how does it relate slash be a contender to fetch. Yeah, so the simple answer there is web transport is the new type of web sockets. Really. Right? So if you have fetches really just for fetching URLs, pure HTTP, and then you used to have web sockets if you wanted to do something custom or something more real time, you would switch to web sockets. And then web transport is going to have a lot of protocol people angry at me for this, but web socket web transport is basically web sockets over HTTP3. Mm -hmm. That's completely untrue. <laughs> Technically, it's very different, but conceptually, it's exactly that. So basically, you get web sockets over H3. You get all the benefits from HTTP3, but crucially, and this is the big difference, why would you ever want this? You can also do unreliable data over web transport. Okay. So if you're doing something like multiplayer gaming, Right. You often need unreliable updates, things that don't need to be retransmitted. You can now do that in web transport. That's, to me, that's a big killer feature. Many other killer features in there, but for me, that's what makes the biggest difference. You can do unreliable data in the browser today, but you need to use like WebRTC, mm -hmm. the data channel, and it works, but it's difficult to set up. Not many deployments have support for that on the server side. And web transport will just make all of this very nicely packaged within the HTTP3 framework. It should be like a drop-in replacement for anything that you would use WebSockets or the data channel for WebRTC for. And even in some cases where you would use Fetch right now, you will change to WebTransport. So super powerful, super flexible new API coming up. It's so exciting to see these lower level primitives sort of like being reflected in the HTTP protocols, whether that be like in the serverless domain or in the root protocol domain. And I'm just counting, this is amazing, especially the UDP thing. I'm just counting down the days till we're going to get Age of Empires 2 rewritten in the web browser. I'm going to be so happy when the, <laughs> when that day comes. Oh, yes. And I love that you use Age of Empires 2 as an example because that is still an amazing game. It will for always be the, it is like the golden standard. Robin, let's close this out. If people are saying they want to go check out HTTP 3, and they want to start tooling with it in their day-to-day, -day. what's maybe a word of wisdom and caution that you would give people when they're stepping into this new technology? Like It could be as simple as, this is bigger than you think, or this is smaller than you think. The main thing I would say there as a caution is, it's difficult to test. 
We haven't talked about it today, but there's something called Alt-SVC, Alternative Services. How you actually get HTTP3 to work with the browser is more complex than you probably think. And if you really want to test performance between H2 and H3, also very complicated. But if you don't really want to test and you just want to trust your deployment that they will make it work, <laughs> then it's really simple. You just enable it, you just flip the switch in, for example, your CDN, and it just works. And I would say, focus on that. Focus on that. You focus on the easier to reach bits right now and get familiar. Yes. Gotcha. Exactly. Robin, it was a pleasure having you on and really doing our second version, our follow-up to our last podcast on HTTP3 and starting to learn about how we as web developers can start to tool with it and why it's so great. Hope to have you on again when we can talk more about how the protocol is developing, among other things, but it was truly a pleasure. If people wanted to keep up to date with you, do you post anywhere on the internet? Uh, I'm very active on my Twitter. Okay. So very active on my Twitter and my LinkedIn um, as well. You can find the links close to the recording. Yeah, somewhere in the show notes. Yeah, so probably best to just look for me there. I post on various different blogs. I don't really have my own blog yet. Robin, once again, it was a pleasure. Thank you for your time. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And have fun with H3, guys. (laughs) 